Good morning again, and uh, greetings and blessings from the other side of the world, uh, from our brothers and sisters from Pakistan, and from Shawnee, Kansas as well. So glad to see you again, uh, second time. I think last year I came in July. Uh, this is a little bit late, but uh, very good to see you and share uh, what God is doing uh, around the world uh, in uh, Pakistan, and also more glad to share his living and life-changing word. Let us turn uh, to the word of God. Again, I'm using the same Bible last year I used. Might be a little different. I'm not using Urdu Bible. Uh, it's uh, NASB. So our text today is from Ephesians chapter 2, which is a very close to, uh, you know, um, we love uh, uh, John 3.16 and those kind of verses really, but this is the one actually I understood uh, the true gospel when I first time was in seminary, uh, first week of the seminary. So I'm sharing my own heart to you what God has done to me and what God has done to his church, his own people. So let us turn to the word of God. Before we read the word, let us, let us again bow our heads and hearts and uh, ask God's blessing. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, we now are here in your presence to hear you speak from heaven to us. And we are here to receive your reign of the word and blessing and grace which never returns in vain. Our hearts are prepared. If not, Lord, I ask your spirit to prepare our heart to learn and love your word. Lord, your law is a schoolmaster, and I pray that we may learn from your word. It is our counselor. I pray that we will be ruled by it, and it is our divine physician that I pray that we will be healed by it. Lord, now I'm ready to share your word. Be with me. And your word is life-giving, unchangeable, and life-changing word. Help me, ask, help me to offer a testimony of you and leave sinners inexcusable, neglecting your mercy. In Christ's gracious name I ask. Amen. I will be reading uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through Seven, but my main focus would be from verses 4 through 7. Here is God's holy, inerrant word. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you were formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is, now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all firmly lived in the lust of our flesh, indwelling, uh, indulging 
the desires of flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us, in Christ Jesus. Amen. May the Lord bless his reading and hearing his word. Not only in Pakistan, but some teachers everywhere in America, everywhere, now they claim that the spiritual condition of man is merely one of sickness. However, the Bible tells us that the sinners that they are not, sinners are not just sick, but they are dead. And they need to be resurrected, not just to regain their physical health. That's what the first three verses of this chapter present us a hopeless humanity trapped in sin under Satan's power unable to save itself. The opening verses of Ephesians chapter 2 describe the dreadful condition of those who are unsaved. The flesh, mind, and the will of the lost sinner have all been affected by sin, and every fiber of his being is tainted by and trapped in sin. No matter how hard sinner tries, no matter how much self-improvement and religious activities he engages in, he will never be acceptable to God apart from Christ Jesus, our Lord. Because no one can purchase salvation. Let me share here one illustration with you. One day, uh, this morning even, uh, brother, McCollum was showing uh, this part of the uh, city. There are lots of homeless people, and I see some in uh, uh, the Kansas City, Kansas as well. One day, a wealthy man approached a homeless man and offered to help him purchase a nice home. How good. He told the home man that uh, you can even pick up the house of your choice. Oh, wow. That would be wonderful. As that wealthy man handed him the title deed, the homeless man dug into his pocket and took out two pennies. While he was doing that, by accident, he dropped these two pennies into mud, and he reached down again and picked up those uh, um, dirty uh, and uh, those pennies and, uh, you know, placed them into the wealthy man's hand. And he said, sir, thank you so much, but this is a gift, too much of a gift. I must pay for it. 
I must pay for it. Do you know what he did? He really disrespected and dishonored that man. He told him that this is a too big gift, so I must pay for it. He insulted his friend by doing this. Likewise, I learned in a seminary first time, I heard this uh, um, from a, one of the professors, that I was the man who was insulting Christ by doing rosary to Mary and trying to earn my own salvation, uh, trying to pay for my salvation. Likewise, we insult Christ when we try to add our filthy rags of righteousness to his precious gift of salvation. All of our self-efforts cannot take away our sins. The present conditions and the future condemnations of the lost sinner could not be stated any more awful term, in any more awful terms than it is, it is clearly uh, taught us in the first three verses of this chapter. That's where the lost person is today. That's where I was one day. And that's where we all were one time. But now, what do the dead, deceived, depraved, and doomed sinner need? That's what is told us and taught us in the next four verses. He needs divine intervention. He needs divine intervention. That's exactly what the passage before us describes. Ephesians chapter 4, chapter 2, verses 4 and 7 clearly tells us. As stated in John, Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is of the Lord, and that is what I want you to comprehend this morning. The Almighty God tra- transforms the lifeless and stone heart of the lost sinner, and he replaces with the flesh heart. I want this morning to examine this morning our text and subject under two major points. Those are divine intervention in our life is personal, precious, and profound. A little longer title. Divine intervention in our life is personal, precious, and profound. And the second point would be divine identification in our life through resurrection, ascension, and session of Jesus Christ. Let us turn to our first point, and I would be focusing on verses 4 and 5a. Let me read again. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. The verse 4 begins with two mighty antithetical words, very two little words, but God. These two words compare the desperate state of fallen mankind in verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, and the gracious initiative and sovereign action of God in verse 4. We were the object of, the object of his wrath, but God had great mercy upon us. 
We were dead, but God made us alive with Christ. We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness, but God has raised us with Christ in a position of honor and power. Thus God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. Therefore, it is essential to hold both parts of this contrast together. What is that? Namely, we are by nature, and what we are by nature, and what we are by grace. The human condition and the divine compassion, God's wrath and God's love. But again, God here. But God, these two words, I believe, are also filled with glory, power, and meaning. These two little words, just, just six little letters, one conjunctions and one personal noun, may just be the greatest words in the Bible. These two words tell us where salvation originates and what is the source of our salvation. And we are told there it originates in the person of God. Then these two word, little words tell us who initiated our salvation. And we learn that it is God himself. Always he makes the first move in salvation because the last sinner is incapable of making the first move toward God. I tried hard. Even no matter, even we are part of RP Church, no, no matter where we are, but it is God. We, can, we are unable to make an initiative or we can um, earn our salvation. That's why in First John chapter 4, verse 19, um, we read that we love because first he loved us. Again, John chapter 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws near. Also, these two words mark the difference between the life and death, between the life of turmoils and the life of peace, between salvation and damnations, and between heaven and hell. Dear God's people, take a moment to look at yourself and see where the personal intervention of God made an in internal difference in your life. And we are going to look at that. First of all, God's intervention is personal. God's intervention is personal. But God being rich in mercy. Look at the next phrase in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God being rich in mercy. Let us take a moment to think about Paul, uh, what Paul is saying here. He mentions the fact that God is rich in mercy. It is repeated again and again. If you look at that, the word mercy or gracious, it is there for six times in first three verses, uh, in the first ch three chapters. In him we have redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our tra uh, trespasses according to the rich, riches of his grace. The word rich refers to an overabundance that is, that is without measure. The characteristics suggest that God possesses an overabundant 
and measureless and unlimited quantity or quality and quantity of mercy. Again, Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verse 5 and 8, the same assertion is made, by grace you have been saved. If you group together these four and one to four verse, uh, ten verses together, it's an inspiring psalm celebrating the glorious or glories of salvation of sola gratia, grace alone. Our Savior Christ was marked by his mercy while he walked on the earth. Many times we read in the Bible that he moved by with compassion, like Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without shepherd. He looked upon those who were helpless in their afflictions and in their sins. On those occasions, you see, Savior's mercy moved him to reach out in love, and Jesus assured his disciple of his precious love. In John chapter 15, verse 9, he said, Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in me. That is a precious, precious and personal love of Jesus Christ. And we also see God's intervention is not only personal, precious, but it is also profound. It is profound. If we read in verse 5, verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Jesus Christ. Notice when, when God's divine intervention occurred, what was the time? Verse 5 says that it was even when we were dead in our sins. As I said, God did not wait until we improved our conditions. I tried hard. That's why I wrote uh, that book, The Bible and Mary. I tried. I, I, I was doing rosary every day, praying to saints and, and, uh, and, and Mary. I tried my hard. But God's divine intervention occurred even before. He did not wait until we got better or we improved our condition. He did not wait even until I joined in 2011, I joined RPCNA. No, he set his love on us while we were still dead in our trespasses. I think I was very critical when I came out from Roman Catholic Church, but I know I think I really thank God. God used that time so I can now reach out those Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for that. And he loved us in spite of our wickedness. He reached down to us when he knew that we could not and we would not reach up to him. That's verse 4 and 5. Answer these three critical questions regarding our salvation. What are those? Why God made us alive? It answers that because of his very nature. He's a merciful God. Then when God made us alive, it, it, it explains that when we were dead in our sins, 
and how God made us alive by grace alone and through Christ alone. When we are placed in Christ, we become the exact opposite of what we were before. Everything changes, and it changes forever, permanently. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. We do sin. But it changed. We are changed. We are new creatures. That is very profound to me. Thank God for his personal, precious, and profound intervention in my life. I'm here this morning sharing his word before you. God's intervention in every believer's, it's personal, precious, and profound. That's what the word of God teaches us this morning. And second point is divine identification in verses 5 and 6. Let me read again. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Not only has God intervened in our lives by loving us and saving us, our last in, from our last conditions, but he also identifies us with his, with his son and everybody, or all those who are redeemed around the world. In other words, when God looks upon us, he sees us as we are in Christ Jesus. He does not see our sins, but he sees the righteousness of Christ yeah, I tried again, again, I would say, I tried. And my parents taught me, my church, my mom, my dad taught me how I can be more righteous. That, these verses changed my whole perspective. First time, the very first week I was there. Looks like God was waiting me, uh, for me, uh, or waiting uh, that when I will be there, the right time. Dr. Young was preaching, and God opened my mind and heart. Wow. I tried my heart, but it didn't work. It is God. But he identifies us, identifies with his son, those who are redeemed. In other words, when God looks upon us, he sees us just as we are his people in his son. He doesn't see our sins. He doesn't see us as we are, but he sees us as he is, his only begotten son. He changed our, not our outward characters, but our relationship with Christ Jesus. In verses 12 and 12 through 14, Paul reminds his readers about the alienations and reconciliations. In verse 12, in our sins, we were alienated from Christ. Remember that you were at times separated from God, from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the, uh, stranger to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in world. So that was our condition. And in verse 13 and 14, by God's grace, we are placed into a vital relationship with him. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I never knew you a couple of years ago. And I've traveled around the world a lot. I do remember I was in Heidelberg University studying there. There were lots of different people. But uh, in a class, one day after class, one elderly lady and uh, uh, her husband, I was introducing myself uh, where I am from. And they just they came to me after class. Are you from Pakistan? And are you Christian? They were immediately, they, they were like my elder brothers or my father and mothers. Do you know why? Because they knew we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And we were brought near immediately. We had the same relationship with um, uh, each other as we have with the Father because our Father is one. And notice here in verse uh, 3, important proposition in um, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7. With Christ in verse 5, in Christ in verse 6, and again in Christ, verse 7. That means what is true of Christ is true of all of us around the world, wherever we live. It doesn't matter. We are one in Christ. This passage speaks at, the, at, at least three areas in which the redeemed are identified with Christ. And we all are identified with Christ. We are, first we are identified with him in his resurrection, verse uh, 5b, made us alive together with Christ. Paul is saying here that God made us alive together with Christ, that we are resurrected. We are resurrected people. The resurrection is not only something that will happen in the future, definitely that's going to happen, but we are already alive people, resurrected with him. We are no more dead, but we are raised. But saints are already made alive. That means we passed from death to life, death unto life. And if we have already been uh, encountered that resurrection in our life, we must now be living a new life for the glory of God. As a result of our union with Christ, we have a new life, but it is not our life. It is new life, but it is not our life. Christ lives in us, and we live for him. That's what Paul reminds us in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave, me, gave up for me. When God made us alive, he marked a very significant difference in our life. The difference between the sinner and the difference between the saint. Difference between unbeliever and believer. But what is that difference look like in our lives today? Did God change some faculties in believers that the unbelievers do not have or they lack? I don't think so. 
Believers are not given a new brain or new intelligence or even artificial intelligence, anything else. They have everything the same believers have. We always had those faculties and these are our servants and instruments. Then what is a new then? What is a new in us? That is called new bent or new disposition. Because we are made alive with him, there's a new power working in us and guiding our faculties and our minds and our hearts in a new direction. Because we share Christ's life, it means that tomorrow doesn't, doesn't have to be like yesterday. We have been empowered to live a new life. We are new creatures to the glory of God. This is what it means to be identified with him in the heavenly places. Uh, identified with him, resurrected with him. Secondly, we are identified with him in his ascension. Verse 6, we, in ascension. Next, Paul says, and he raised us up with him. The expression raised up is sometimes used as a resurrection in the previous verse, but not here in verse 6. The expression raised up is, means, the phrase refers to Christ's ascension back in heaven after 40 days of his um, resurrection. We saw that we are made alive and have been given a new disposition and now we are able and now we are being raised and take, he's taken us up in heavenly places in heaven. Uh, in, in, in a spiritually, I'm not talking about uh, the erroneous or fallacious or uh, uh, idea of uh, rapture. We are not uh, raptured or will be raptured. We are already with him in heavenly places. We saw that we are made alive and have been given a new dispositions and being raised with him and seated us in heavenly places. But we are in a greater heavenly realm. Now in Christ we belong more to heaven. That means we belong more to heaven than to earth. This means that we are God's kingdom people. That means also we have a, a two addresses. One address in Shawnee or Bloomington and one address in, 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 in heaven. We are identified in his ascension. And thirdly, we are identified with him in his session, verse 6b. The Paul says in verse 6 that he seated us, seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Though the unbelievers, no, the believers physically live on earth, but spiritually they are already there. Now the purpose, what is the purpose? of God for us being raised us and also seated us with Christ, the purpose is that we live a life. God's greater purpose in our salvation uh, is that we may live for his sake, not for our own sake, that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness and 
and uh, kindness, and uh, I've been going through uh, some lots of health and uh, eye issue. Now your light is very straight there. I don't know how your pastor handles, uh, but uh, yeah, but uh, it's been bothering, but that's fine. The work of God's mercy has once great purpose to show believers the riches of his grace throughout all the ages to come. That's the purpose of God for his church and his people. Thank you. Looks like it's dimmed. Thank you. It reaches beyond itself. What is that purpose? The church is to be the display of God's grace, his love, and his wisdom in Christ to, the, to all the nations. That's what we are doing here. That's what in a global mission we are doing. That's why we have all the fields around the world. So I pray that God may help us to live a life in Christ and we may be a display of God's grace, love, wisdom, and to, the all, to, to all the nations. Let us pray. Father, thank you so much for all the marvelous truths we have learned today that we were dead and we were unable to raise us ourselves up. We were unable to reach to you or we were unable to earn our own salvation. Thank you for your love that you have revealed to us in Christ Jesus. Even though we belong to different cultures, different countries, different backgrounds, different families, but we are one in Christ. We were far off, but you have brought us together. We pray that the truth you have shown and into our heart, the light you have, uh, light and grace you have poured upon us. Lord, I pray that it may produce wonderful things, things of beauty and great blessing to not only to us, but to many around us, and that we live for you and your son, for his glory. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. In Christ's gracious name I ask. Amen. In response to God's word, we will be singing. Oh, I'm sorry, I read it. I, did I leave there? My, I think I brought. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we will be singing um, Psalm 32a, and after benediction, there will be uh, Psalm of Doxology 134b, Psalm 32a. Please rise up. <laughs> 